Terry Tempest-Williams, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. And I just have to say to you, thank you for what you have created um, for all of us. And I want everyone in this room to know um, what a privilege it is to be here. And I first have to really thank this community with Michael, uh, with Lenore, with Jennifer Stoll, and all of those who have helped so much our own family heal. My brother Steve um, was a participant, as you know, and it really changed his life. And so I'm very mindful of his spirit and the healing that occurred here that is ongoing. So thank you for that. And this um, little piece here is a piece that Terry's brother Steve did after he came to Commonweal. And we keep it on the front desk. Uh, for those of you who can't see it, it's a wooden, um, little wooden square with a piece of rock, probably from Utah, mm. yeah, and a candle. And then we put the names of all people who've asked that we hold them in their prayers on the, uh, in the little tray here. And there are a couple of sand dollars and a little, some feathers and a little smudge. Of, what is that? I think this is some kind of, we call it old man's beard. Okay. But a kind of lichen, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it's beautiful. So, Terry, you are the Annie Clark Tanner Scholar in Environmental Humanities at the University of Utah. And your books include Refuge, Leap, Red, The Open Spaces of Democracy, and your new book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, um, which... Um, just came out in October, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's just start with this book because you are wandering around the country talking about it. How do you find beauty in a broken world? I think you first catch your breath, and I have not caught mine yet. I think I'm so nervous um, being here. Uh, finding beauty in a broken world. I think for me, it's, it's creating beauty in the world we find. It's this lit candle um, that binds us together. It's, it's this community and Bolinas and beyond. I think it's, it's having conversations like the one you and I had this morning walking, um, where there's an authentic spirit, an authentic exchange that occurs, a stillness of heart. Um, I think it's the seedbed of, of creativity to create something. This book is in large part about prairie dogs. Um, you spent a lot of time watching prairie dogs before you wrote this book. My father said that the prairie dog section of this book is so boring, no one will get through it. And <laughs> if they do, it's such a downer. They'll be sorry they did after. Um, I think our families keep us grounded. <laughs> I love prairie dogs. And I think about a story that Barry Tolkien, a folklorist who lived with the Diné on the Navajo reservation, um, told to me. And in 1950, in Chinchilbado, Arizona, the Army Corps of Engineers came to the Navajo Nation. They said, we are starting a sheep production program. And part of that is to remove all of the prairie dogs so that we'll have a healthier range. We're planting new grasses and they interfere. And the Navajo elders listened, and one of the elders stood and said, 
If you take away all the prairie dogs, there will be no one to cry for the rain. You can imagine how this went over with the government officials. And they proceeded with their plan. And within a matter of months, without the prairie dogs to aerate the soil, when the rains did come, there was no way the water could percolate down to the roots of the new grasses. They died. What we had was a condition of of hard pan, no give to the sand, erosion. Um, If you take away all the prairie dogs, there will be no one to cry for the rain. Right before the millennium, before the year 2000, the New York Times Magazine um, had an article on the sixth extinction. And I know this is something you've been thinking about with endangered species. Um, Niles Eldridge listed six species that most likely would not make it to the next millennium. And the Utah prairie dog was first among them. And my heart broke. And I thought, under my watch, under our watch. And um, I think... I re-engaged. I grew up with prairie dogs. My family shot them. Um, my father and brothers and cousins, uncles, called them pop guts. They were expendable, called them the untouchables, vermin. Um, and so I've always been mindful of the prairie dogs' capacity to survive, that they hold Pleistocene mines that have survived the epic changes through time. So I went back and revisited them, literally, um, in Bryce Canyon National Park. And one of the things I was fascinated to find uh, was a, a letter and a quote from Khan Slobodchikov, who, who says that uh, prairie dogs have the most sophisticated animal language that has yet been decoded. And I thought that was extraordinary. Could you describe uh, how they figured out how complex that language is? Talking to Khan is just, you cannot believe what he's figured out technologically. He's doing audio slices of prairie dog alert calls. And he has found over a hundred prairie dog words. They have their own language. They have their own grammar. What they've been able to find out through this sophistication, audio slicing, and observation is that they can uh, detect man with gun, man with gun who was here yesterday, woman with red shirt, woman with dog. Um, They've actually taken a European ferret that is not known to prairie dogs and, you know, kind of dragged it across the colony. And a new language appears that that has never been recorded before. They've actually taken this ferret, European ferret, different from the uh, black-footed ferret that they've co-evolved with, to another colony, maybe 50 miles away the next day, that same word comes up that has never been noted before. You know, this kind of sophistication of communication that we have no knowledge of. And I think um, prairie dogs have a great deal to teach us about community. Prairie dogs survive because of community. They live in community. Keystone species, over 200 different species, are dependent upon prairie dogs. Vermin, varmint, uh, There's a red mist society, if you can imagine. Hunters, I would call them shooters, uh, that have long-range rifles. Um, They will kill 3,000 prairie dogs in an afternoon. These are families. These are clans. Um, I can't imagine what they are saying to each other in those moments. Um, So I think what Khan is asking us to think about is that these are not only sentient species that have a capacity to feel pain, joy, however we want to imagine, 
but they have a highly sophisticated communication system, so much so that when they are removed from their home ground in their villages, they cease to speak. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't know that. And some of these villages are are enormous. You described one in Texas that was how big? Uh, Ernest Thompson Seton, a wonderful naturalist, and in the journals of Lewis and Clark, talk about prairie dog villages, towns, in Texas, the example I give, 200 miles wide, 100 miles long. Can you imagine? Uh, that would follow the stampeding herds, aerating the prairie. They're diminished mm. now. And in Utah, the Utah prairie dog, which is one of five species in North America, um, are down to about 10,000 individuals. That still sounds like a lot. But when you think about it in terms of communities, we're only talking about nine communities. Out of those nine communities, six are on private lands, which makes them very, very vulnerable. So one of the the major metaphors, or not even metaphors, one of the major descriptions of the natural world in Finding Beauty in a Broken World is is prairie dogs. And then you, you, you... put that alongside of this extraordinary experience that you had in Rwanda. So that there was the extinction of the prairie dogs on the one hand, and then you're coming to Rwanda. And beyond any expectation on your part, adopting a young adult Rwandan son, Louis. So tell us how Louis came to be your son. Through one wild word, Um, it was after September 11th. I think we all witnessed that moment of brokenness in our country. We saw how quickly the rhetoric changed to one of fear and terror. I was in Washington, D.C. at the time with a group of photographers at the Corcoran Gallery across from the White House. Um, A security guard came in and said, the Twin Towers have been hit, the Pentagon's been struck, we have reason to believe the White House is next run. And we all kept talking. There was nothing in our imagination that could accommodate that. Um, I couldn't get home. I stayed in Washington, D.C. and just wandered the streets for five days listening. And I made a decision, I think, as a citizen, as a writer, that I was going to speak out. And when I heard Senator Ted Stevens say there are many forms of uh, terror and It's not if we're going to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but when. And my response was, there are many forms of terrorism, and environmental degradation is one of them. And throughout that year, I continued to speak out. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times about 50,000-pound thumper trucks roaring across a wilderness study area without public process, public hearing, violating laws. But I think what I saw, what I learned in that year was that my rhetoric had become as brittle and as hollow as those I was opposing. I had lost my poetry. We were in Maine. I was desperate to retrieve what I had lost. I went down to that beautiful rocky shore and call it a plea or a prayer. But I literally said to the sea, give me one wild word and I promise I will follow. And the word that was rolled back to me, the word that I heard in my own heart was mosaic. Mosaic. And mosaic. And I'll be honest, I was disappointed. 
<laughs> I thought, you know, coming out of the culture that I came out of, I thought, great, my life is relegated to one of craft and I'm terrible. You know, I thought it would be taking my mother's plates, breaking them and making bad picture frames. Um, that was my ignorance. You know, I, I went to Ravenna, Italy. I did research. I found that that was really the birthplace of... of um, Constantinople and Rome, where they shook hands and created a new capital, 402. Uh, these beautiful bejeweled ceilings of, of the ancient mosaicists, anonymous hands, where you saw this transformation of mind on the ceilings from Apollo, the sun god, transformed into Jesus Christ, the son of God. I went, I enrolled in um, a workshop, a very terrifying teacher named Luciana, brilliant. In 30 seconds, she saw there was a dunce among them. And this was a highly specialized, highly sophisticated mosaic workshop for conservators. Um, I was relegated to the corner, and for three weeks, I broke stone with a hammer and a hardy. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I got out of my abstract mind, into my hands, into what was real and tangible. Um, There are rules to mosaic, and the first and last rule of mosaic is light. Um, I love the fifth rule, that uh, there is perfection and imperfection. Anyway, when I came home, uh, my own home ground, Colorado Plateau, beautiful wide open spaces, suddenly became an ecological mosaic. That little vertical tessera, Utah Prairie Dog. How did I get to Rwanda? Lily Ye, a community artist who was responsible in Philadelphia in some of the roughest neighborhoods, um, created the Village of Arts and Humanities. She asked if I would accompany her to Rwanda. I said no. Steve had just passed away. Um, Our family was broken. I was broken. I didn't want to go to a country so familiar with death. Um, She never wavered. She never took her eyes off of me. And I said yes. And Louis Gakumba was our translator, 21 years old, a genocide survivor. Fluent in French, English, Two or three Rwanda. Di- Rwandans, two or three other dialects, and so on. Taught himself English just from a book. To, in competition with his brother, yes, uh, who spoke French, and he thought, I'll speak mm. English. Mm-hmm. Um, but such a beautiful soul. Mm. And I think, you know, I remember when I said, Louis, what are you learning as a translator? This was his first job. He was 22. And he said, I'll tell you tomorrow. He comes back the next day and just said, what, what I've learned about translation is it's beyond trading words. It's, it's listening beyond the word to something deeper. And I think that's what we all felt in Rwanda. You know, Michael, it sounds insane, honestly, doesn't it, to connect prairie dogs with Rwanda. And I have to tell you, there are people that have said, how dare you? You cannot equate the life of a prairie dog to the life of a human being. In my mind, it's not about equating anything. It's about seeing the world whole, even holy, that the extermination, as you say, of a species, the extermination of a people are predicated on the same impulses, prejudice, cruelty, ignorance, and arrogance, and that if we can't begin to see the world whole, then we'll forever be destined to a fragmented, um, fractured world that I do believe is the seedbed for war. Cruelty against nature has 
preoccupied you since you were very young. I remember in, in one of your books you describe uh, how you would go out with your brothers and some uh, other children uh, in Utah and they would pick up frogs and throw the frogs against canyon walls and you would protest mm -hmm. and they would start throwing the frogs at you and you were there trying to see if you could catch the frogs and intercept this fate and then uh, you would go down to the stream and just immerse yourself in the stream and let your tears wash the fragments of the frog from your body along with the stream. So this has been a deep sense in you from really very early in your life. You know, I think we're a violent species. And I think one of the things that um, was so powerful in Rwanda is to realize the violence that we were witnessing, the aftermath of war, of genocide, is, is not something outside us, but within us, capable of erupting at any moment. And again, I remember Louis saying, when we were standing on the edge of, of this mass grave where 30,000 people were murdered by hand, um, you know, devils on one hand, angels on the other, how do we bring these two hands together in prayer and remember what it means to be human? You know, with my brothers and you know, we, we grew up in a quintessential American West family, you know, cowboy boots. I guess I still am part of that. Yeah. But, um, you know, after my mother was diagnosed with cancer the second time, um, the men in my family no longer hunted. Somehow something got translated about the preciousness of life. And I think, you know, my brothers who did hunt, and I went hunting with my father, it wasn't so much the killing as the communion, you know, with another species. And so I've watched the men in my family um, evolve to a different ethic of place. So I think the ethic we grew up with as children um, in our family has shifted because of what we've experienced as a family. Your book, Refuge, which tells the story of, of your mother's death and your grandmother's death, Refuge, an Unnatural History of Family and Place. I was reading it the other night in preparation for our conversation, and when I reached the passages about your mother's death, I just began to weep. I just began to weep. Um, um, it, it's uh, such a powerful, uh, beautiful book. And... Um, the last part of the book, the epilogue of the book, is, is an epilogue called The Clan of One-Breasted Women. And I wonder if you'd read a little bit from it for me and, and, um, and then just comment. I'd like you to read the beginning and then when you get a chance, go to the end where you get yourself arrested on the reservation. So if, in any way that works for you. If you can sort of tell us that piece, uh, I'd love to hear that. I belong to a clan of one-breasted women. My mother... I haven't read this in years. I belong to a clan of one-breasted women. My mother, my grandmothers, and six aunts have all had mastectomies. 
seven are dead. The two who survive have just completed rounds of chemotherapy and radiation. I've had my own problems. Two biopsies for breast cancer and a small tumor between my ribs, diagnosed as a borderline malignancy. This is my family history. Most statistics tell us breast cancer is genetic, hereditary, with rising percentages attached to fatty diets, childlessness, or becoming pregnant after 30. What they don't say is living in Utah may be the greatest hazard of all. We are a Mormon family with roots in Utah since 1847. The word of wisdom in my family aligned us with good food. No coffee, no tea, tobacco, or alcohol. For the most part, our women were finished having their babies by the time they were 30, and only one faced breast cancer prior to 1960. Traditionally, as a group of people, Mormons have a low rate of cancer. I think what I want to say here is is really to tell the story. Um, you know, I remember David Quammen was at the Utah Museum of Natural History, who's a wonderful writer, and he was about to show a slideshow on island biogeography. And as friends do, you can't quite, you know, just go right to the heart of things. And he said, Terry, tell me how you are. And I said, not good. I belong to a clan of one-breasted women. That was the first time I heard that phrase come out of my mouth. Um, my mother had just died, my grandmother's son. Shortly thereafter, I was having dinner with my father, and he said, how are you? And I just said, you know, I keep having this nightmare, this flash of light in the night illuminating buttes and mesas, and I can't sleep. Every night, this flash of light in the night in the desert. And he said, well, you saw it. And I said, saw what? And he said, I thought you knew that. It was a common occurrence in the 1950s. Um, He said, in fact, I remember exactly the moment. We were coming back from California, You were sitting on Diane, my mother's lap. She was pregnant with Steve. It was an hour or so before dawn. We saw this explosion, what I thought. We pulled over. I thought the oil tanker in front of us had blown up. And then suddenly rising from the desert was this golden stem cloud, the mushroom. Within a few minutes, a light ash was raining on the car. I think it was at that moment, Michael, I realized the deceit we'd been living under as children growing up in the American Southwest, drinking contaminated milk from contaminated cows, even the breasts of our mothers, members years later of the clan of one-breasted women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you describe, you go on to describe the many years that these nuclear tests went on, and, and you, you talk either there or elsewhere about how the government insisted that there was no danger at all, and how you were grew up in a very patriotic community, which wanted to, which accepted authority and wanted to accept the authority of, of the government's word on this. And I remember the terror as a writer, as a as a daughter, the betrayal I felt when I wrote on a piece of paper with a pencil, shaking, blind obedience, in the name of patriotism or religion. ultimately takes our lives. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. And I, I've seen it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, blind obedience in the name of patriotism or religion ultimately takes our lives. And then the word that followed was sheep, dead sheep, the evidence is buried, which is a story, again, of downwinders. 1952 to 1962, above-ground testing, even after Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and then below testing from 1962 to 1992. My brothers working in those soils, Steve, the fifth person. 
under, you know, 45 um, to be diagnosed with a blood-borne cancer in his neighborhood. And I remember when these hearings came up again to extend the circle of inquiry, Steve was so sick, and he said, I can't go to the hearings. I can't take this on, but will you go for me? You know, it's just, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Um, And what do we do? You know, how do we find beauty in a broken world? I think we create something. And as Maxine Hunkinson says, maybe it's a poem, a vow, a moment of silence. Maybe it's crossing the line. And I will read this part that you asked. I crossed the line at the Nevada test site and was arrested with nine other Utahns for trespassing on military lands. They are still conducting nuclear tests in the desert. Ours was an act of civil disobedience, but as I walked toward the town of Mercury, it was more than a gesture of peace. It was a gesture on behalf of the clan of one-breasted women. As one officer cinched the handcuffs around my wrists, another frisked my body. She found a pen and a pad of paper tucked inside my left boot. And these, she asked sternly, weapons, I replied. Our eyes met. I smiled. She pulled the leg of my trousers back over my boot. Step forward, please, she said, as she took my arm, gently. We were booked under an afternoon sun and bust to tone upon Nevada. It was a two-hour ride. This was familiar country. The Joshua trees standing their ground had been named by my ancestors who believed they looked like prophets pointing west to the promised land. These were the same trees that bloomed each spring, flowers appearing like white flames in the Mojave, and I recalled a full moon in May when Mother and I had walked among them, flushing out morning doves and owls. The bus stopped short of town. We were released. The officials thought it was a cruel joke to leave us stranded in the desert with no way to get home. What they didn't realize is that we were home, soul-centered and strong, women who recognized the sweet smell of sage as fuel for our spirits. Isn't that beautiful? I just love that line where the police officer finds the, the... pad of paper and the pen and, and Terry's boot and says, and what are these? And Terry says, weapons. <laughs> and the, meets her eyes and the police officer puts her trouser back, doesn't take them away, and gently takes her hand mm. and the sisterhood that goes beyond mm. right and left. And you know, it, it comes down to those moments, doesn't it? of our shared humanity. And I think there's so much polarity in this country. You know, I'm mindful of an extraordinary moment with um, a woman named Rachel Bagby. Perhaps you know her. We know Rachel very much. Yeah, you know the power of her voice. This would have been, um, I think, March, the first weekend in March um, 2003, before the invasion of, of Iraq. There was a Code Pink demonstration. I love in Europe, they call them manifestations. You know, there were 10,000 people there. And it was from Martin Luther King Jr. Park, Memorial Park, all the way down to Lafayette Park, which, as you know, is across from the White House. When we got down to Lafayette Park, there was a blockade of Washington, D.C. policemen. We could not go any further, even though we had a permit. It's a national park, public land. And I remember Medea Benjamin having a very lively conversation with the captain, And it was getting tense. People were lining up. It was getting very stressful. And Rachel Bagby just walked down a bit 
the line of police and stood in front of, of one gentleman, African-American also, and just again those eyes started singing, all we are asking is to give peace a chance. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And she just kept singing in this beautiful, powerful, soulful voice, eye to eye. And I remember watching, thinking, neither one of them would be who they are or where they are if it was not for their mothers and fathers before them and their mothers and fathers before them and their mothers and fathers before them in those acts of civil disobedience. And all of a sudden you saw the policeman's tears and he stepped to the side creating this open space that we could then walk through. You have found yourself in nature and in wild places uh, all your life, almost. Um, There's a place where you say that you discovered that, that you could not find the truth in dogma and that it was in wildness that you found you found yourself and continue to find yourself. And I want to, uh, let's see, a couple of places that this comes out particularly. I was thinking, Michael, this morning when we were talking about books that had affected us. Yeah. And I realized, I think my spiritual text mm-hmm. has been... Roger Torrey Peterson's Field Guide to Western Birds. Uh-huh. You know, that, that it really started then um, dreaming about those birds long before I saw them. Where is... Give me just a minute here because there was a place that... What did I do with it? I'll tell you a story while you're finding yeah, that. Yeah. Speaking of field guides as sacred texts, um, Brooke and I, my husband, who's right here, we've been married almost 35 years and I was working at Sam Weller's bookstore in Salt Lake City, this wonderful bookstore. Mm-hmm. And Brooke came in. I didn't know who he was. He'd been on cataract. He'd been in, you know, in the Colorado River for a month, looking rather wild himself. And he was with a woman I knew from school. I was only 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I was behind the counter, and he came, and I thought, I can't believe this man. He has, they're all my favorite books. Mm-hmm. And then he said to this woman, Norv, Lee Lambert, um, my one dream in life is to own all the field guides. My one dream in life is to own all the Peterson field guides. And she said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and without thinking, I said, I already have them. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's how we met. But I think that's another aspect of, of sacred texts looming large in one's life. Yeah. I can't find the passage, but the... the, the the place, I remember your description of being lifted into the Arctic National Refuge in a small airplane and being terrified of flying and uh, having the plane land uh, and then just being left there uh, with your friends to camp and so on. Which book is that in? It's in The Open Space of Democracy. Oh, it's in The Open Space of Democracy. Yeah. Can you find that? Sure. Shows how together I am here. No, um, I'm. You have this marked, and this is. You know, we were talking about the questions that keep us up at night, Mm -hmm. and this is one of mine. 
Here's my question. What might a different kind of power look like, feel like? And can power be distributed equitably among ourselves, even beyond our own species? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we felt like a moth flying into the Arctic. It was such enormous country. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you not feel the weight of, of that Well, what struck me is not only have you found yourself in nature, but in the open space of democracy, there is this beautiful uh, equation almost of wildness and democracy itself. So there's not only the the spiritual home that you found there, but your sense, and you've found others who have shared this, that democracy itself rests on this wildness, and that if we destroy the wildness, that in some sense we destroy democracy. I, I agree with you on that. Beauty is presence, and it resides in the Brooks Range. My fear of flying in a small plane, I'm riding on the back of a moth through clouds, is overcome by awe as we maneuver through majesty, These are not mountains, but ramparts of raw creation. The retreat of gods, crags, cirques, and glaciers sing hymns to ice. Talus slopes and grays and topes become the marbled papers, creased and folded inside prayer books. You would call this overriding, right? But in the Arctic. (laughs) We fly through the valleys, following the river, watching the paths of doll sheep based one hillside to the next. We land on a gravel bar, stopping just short of the raging river. Our pilot, Dirk, from Coyote Air, lives up to the name of his company. Our guide, Jim Campbell, his son, Kyle, my husband, Brooke, and I unload the plane quickly. Big weather is coming, and six others in our party are waiting in Arctic Village to be picked up. The plane makes a quick, short turnaround, speeds down the gravel bar, and lifts up. Again, missing the river in the nick of time, Dirk vanishes into the brooks like a star engulfed by clouds. The sound of his engine disappears. We are left standing in deep, vast stillness, even with water rushing at our feet. And then this, drinking from the river, I am drinking from the river, this tincture of glaciers, this press of ice warmed by the sun. If water can pool in one's heart, then my heart is full. My arid heart has been waiting for decades, maybe three, for the return of the childhood pleasure of drinking directly from the source. Drinking from the river, we all are. Ten pilgrims unaided, no iodine, no fancy filters or pumps. Just the sweet dip of our cups from river to mouth. As much as we want, whenever we want. Our deep, unmeasured thirsts are quelled. When my father asks me what it was like to visit the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, I will simply say, we drank from the river. Isn't that extraordinary? There's a a power to your writing, Terry, that just knocks me out. And, um, And I've been trying to understand not only what it is, but how you do it. I find myself uh, studying the writing. Um, It seems to me it's this combination of of, uh, direct perception from a deep place in yourself, the deepest place, the willingness to tell the truth about it, and then... uh, an exquisite uh, craft with the writing itself. Um, I guess I'd like to ask you 
about your evolution as a writer. How, how did you come to see your craft as a writer? What is that story? I think it's the last word of your sentence. Story. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think for years I couldn't call myself a writer. You know, I was an activist. I was um, a teacher. You know, writing was a way of conveying my love of the wild. You know, I talk about how my brother's tool of choice is a shovel and mine is a, a pen. You know, each creating an infrastructure I think, for um, community in different ways. For me, it's about the story. It's that story is the umbilical cord between the past, present, and future. Story keeps things known. When we tell a story, it's as though a third person enters the room and we become accountable for that knowledge which has been shared. It's a deep tenant in my Mormon upbringing. You know, five generations sitting around the dinner table telling stories. And... I think story bypasses rhetoric and pierces the heart. We're no longer wedded to opinions or positions, but we see ourselves as as human beings. So I think now I can finally call myself a writer. It's it's what I do. It's what I love. And I think Louis, you know, as a translator, um, trying to find what's both behind the words, beneath the words, transcendent from words and yet still lives inside the elegance of a word, the precision of a word, of a word, knowing that words will always fail us, they always fall short, um, but it's the attempt. You know, I think, have, may I share a passage? This would be an example. You know, I think so much it's, is about just paying attention and just telling it straight, nothing fancy. It's just what do we see? What do we feel? And how do we find a language that conveys that simplicity? I cannot sleep and slip from the comfort of our tent to face the low, diffused glow of midnight. All colors bow to the gentle arc of light the sun creates as it strolls across the horizon. Green steps become emerald, the river lapis, a patch of cotton grass ignites. My eyes catch the illumined wings of a tern, an arctic tern fluttering, foraging above the river, the embodiment of grace suspended. The turn animates the vast indifference with its own vibrant intelligence, black cap, blood-red beak pointed down, white body with black-tipped wings. With my eyes laid bare, I witness a bright thought in big country. While everyone is sleeping, the presence of this turn hovering above the river, alive, alert, engaged, becomes a vision of what is possible. On this night, I met the Arctic angel and vowed the 22,000 miles of her migratory path between the Arctic and Antarctica would not be in vain. I will remember her. No creature on earth has spent more time in daylight than this species. No creature on earth has shunned darkness in the same way as the Arctic tern. No creature carries the strength and delicacy of determination on its back like this slight bird. If air is the medium of the spirit, then the arctic turn is its messenger. What I know is this. When one hungers for light, it is only because one's knowledge of the dark is so deep. So in a sense, it's just natural history, you know? (laughs) 
And, and that in itself is, is miraculous. Mm-hmm. So we just become the scribe of, of the extraordinary and, and keep it simple. We took a walk this morning as the sun was rising and I asked you who the writers were who had touched you most deeply. And you had the most wonderful list. Can you tell us some of the people you mentioned to me? Uh, Whitman, definitely. I sing the body electric, so celebratory. And yet the other side is this was a man who loved the earth physically, spiritually, and yet took letters for the dying, the soldiers in the Civil War, who every day waited for Mr. Lincoln to take his hat and pay homage to the man who was keeping the Union together. I love Whitman. Emily Dickinson, talk about a precision of language um, in solitude that was universal. Um, you mentioned John Bircher. John Bircher has just captivated my heart. If any of you haven't read Hold Everything Dear or um, From A to X, it is just exquisite. I love his language. And again, it's both elegant language, but there's a political sensibility that I think has everything to do with justice. Mm-hmm. Coetzee, uh, Waiting for the Barbarians, Virginia Woolf, The Waves, Her Interiority. We had so much fun. I think half our walk was just names of, of writers we love. Mm-hmm. And the, you, Michael. Um, well, I told you, actually, I brought you... Um, I told you that most of my list are, are, are uh, great spiritual texts. And um, I actually brought you a copy of the book that you weren't familiar with, of the list, which is the Dhammapada, um, which is one of the great Buddhist texts. And I, I recommended this translation by Juan Moscato right. that uh, I thought you would like. Oh, um, thank you so much. But I, I, don't, I haven't been as deeply uh, touched, and I see this as a fault in my my evolution that I am now correcting, but I haven't been as deeply touched by literature as I have been by the great uh, text. Will you read this? Yeah. I (laughs) love these. Um, Michael was quoting this on the walk. It was so beautiful. I think after you spoke, the sun rose kind of incrementally. (laughs) (laughs) What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a man speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows him as the wheel of the cart follows the beast that draws the cart. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a man speaks or acts with a pure mind, joy follows him as his own shadow. He insulted me, he hurt me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Those who think such thoughts will not be free from hate. He insulted me, he hurt me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Those who think not such thoughts will be free from hate. For hate is not conquered by hate. Hate is conquered by love. This is a law eternal. Many do not know that we are here in this world to live in harmony. Those who know this do not fight against each other. He who lives only for pleasures and whose soul is not in harmony, who considers not the food he eats is idle and has not the power of virtue, such a man is moved by Mara, is moved by selfish temptations, even as a weak tree is shaken by the wind. But he who lives not for pleasures, whose soul is in self-harmony, 
who eats her fast with moderation and has faith in the power of virtue. This man is not moved by temptations, as a great rock is not shaken by the wind. And then it goes on, but the last two passages I'll read in this chapter. If a man speaks many holy words, but he speaks and does not, this thoughtless man cannot enjoy the life of holiness. He is like a cowherd who counts the cows of his master. Whereas if a man speaks but a few holy words, and yet he lives the life of those words, free from passion and hate and illusion, with right vision and a mind free, craving for nothing both now and hereafter, the life of this man is a life of holiness. Mm. It's just so beautiful. Mm. Many of you know that. But this particular translation, the Penguin translation by Juan Mascara, is to me the most beautiful mm. of them. So this is such a treasure. For you. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, in speaking of, of Whitman, I, I don't know, is it, in the, is it in the Desert Quartet that you have the passage about uh, Whitman? I can't remember. Can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. When you talk about the Desert, um, desert Quartet, yeah. I just want to go, oh no. Um, <laughs> the subtitle is An Erotic Landscape. And I was really exploring the question, you know, how might we make love to the land, metaphorically, right? Um, well, in the interior West, there's a great deal of conflict, as you know. And um, a friend of mine who belongs to the Wyoming Stockmen's Association uh, said, wow, you're on the Wyoming Stockman's uh, webpage. And I said, really? And he said, yes, but you better not look. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you tell me about it? And he said, well, they just uh, quote you as not being credible because of something you've written about being too close to, dancing too close to a fire and singeing your pubic hairs. I'm so sorry to say this. But, um, and then they talked about the f- being... Um, floating down river with desiccated frogs, which you alerted, mm. alluded to. And I thought, you know, there are things in your life that get taken out of context. <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, I just thought I'd share that. This is a passage at the end of the quartet called Wild Mercy. I wonder if you'd read it. I didn't use that word about singed. It's just that's what they said. So, just the Mormon in me wants to clarify that. (laughs) The eyes of the future are looking back at us, and they are praying for us to see beyond our own time. They are kneeling with hands clasped that we might act with restraint, that we might leave room for the life that is destined to come. To protect what is wild is to protect what is gentle. Perhaps the wildness we fear is the pause between our own heartbeats, the silent space that says we live only by grace. Wildness lives by this same grace. Wild mercy is in our hands. Mm. I'd like to ask you to read uh, a short uh, piece that you contributed to a collection that you edited called Testimony, Writers of the West Speak on Behalf of Utah Wilderness. This is a very short piece, but I think it's quite... Very powerful. I appreciate you asking about this. Um, This was a little chapbook that we put together in 1995. 
um, in response to a very bad Utah wilderness bill, America's Red Rock Wilderness Act. Um, our delegation had said that 1.9 million acres should be set aside out of 22 million acres. The citizens' proposal was 5.7 million acres. And if you don't mind me just yeah. prefacing this, I remember um, we had a citizens' hearing that tried to say, you know, these constraints, we, are, we need something larger to voice our opinions and sentiments. And so um, the Ute tribe gave us the Indian Walk-In Center, and we held hearings all night and day until the, everyone had spoken for as long as they wanted. We just wanted a different model than, you know, two minutes, sit down, next. And then um, we were able to convey that consensus of a hearing to our representatives. They had federal hearings, as you know. Representative Hansen was in charge of the um, Senate Subcommittee on Natural Resources. He is also from Utah. We were testifying before him. I've been asked to testify on behalf of the citizens' um, hearings. I was talking to him about the proposal, why we felt it wasn't fair, and he was flipping through papers, yawning, you know, his glasses, daydreaming. Finally, I just broke from the text and said, Representative Hansen, you know, I've lived in Utah all of my life. Is there anything I can say to you that will convey, you know, why this, these wilderness lands matter? And he just looked down off the nose of his glasses and said, Ms. Williams, there's something about your voice I cannot hear. And I don't think it was about the microphone. And it really made me think about what is it in my language that, that is closing hearts and minds rather than opening them. And Steve Trimble, who's a good friend of mine, a writer in Utah, we were having coffee together and we thought, what can we do? And I thought, maybe if he can't hear my voice, he can hear 20 other voices. And so we sent out a letter um, to France, uh, 20 writers from uh, Marty Murray, who at that time was 98 years old, to Rick Bass living in Montana, who was, I think, in his 30s. But all these individuals knew and cared about Utah wilderness. And we, we said, here's the situation on the ground. We're asking for your help. Will you write the most powerful piece you've ever written in your life, um, a thousand words, and we cannot pay you, and we need it in three weeks. And we got 20 pieces that were powerful. And we found a benefactor that gave us $6,000. We printed it. We made a little chapbook, and we sent it up onto the Hill as a literary bill with sponsors in the House and in the Senate, Feingold in the Senate, um, Hinchy in the House. I remember as we presented this, there was a reporter who said, Are you crazy? Do you know how much paper goes on? you know, up in Washington. And my, the tempest in me just started, was going to get mad. Trimble was much cool, more cool, and said, you know, writing is always an act of faith. What happened, and this is what I love about life, that you can never anticipate, is that it died in the house, this bill, America's Red Rock Wilderness, well, the bad bill, and it went to the Senate in a filibuster, and we were so hoping, you know, that this bill would die in the Senate, well, in a filibuster, what do you need? Words. <laughs> and Senator Bill Bradley from New Jersey stood up, had this little chapbook that one of his aides had handed him, and said, Senator Hatch, Senator Bennett, with all due respect, these are not Utah lands, but these lands belong to all Americans, and I'd like to read from one of my constituents in New Jersey, John McPhee, Basin Range, Basin Range, Basin Range. The entire chapbook was entered into the congressional record. <laughs> 
So this was my contribution. And again, it's, I wanted to tell a story. I didn't want rhetoric. There is a woman who is a tailor. She lives in Green River, Utah, and makes her livelihood performing alterations, taking a few inches here, letting out a few inches there, basting in hems, then finishing them with a feather stitch. While hiking in the San Rafael Swell, this woman was raped, thrown down face first on the sand. She never saw the face of her assailant. What she knew was this, that in that act of violence, she lost her voice. She was unable to cry for help. He left her violated and raw. The woman returned home and told no one of her experience. Instead, she grabbed a large spool of red thread, a pair of scissors, and returned to the swell. The woman cut pieces of thread and placed them delicately on the desert. Six inches, three inches, twelve inches, they appeared as a loose stitch seam upon the land. She saw them as bloodlines. Remembering the fetishes of Zuni she had held that draw the heart down, she recalled rabbit, lizard, and rattlesnake. She continued to cut lines in memory of animals she had known, seen, and spent time with in these red rock canyons. Deer, mountain lion, flicker, and raven. And on one occasion, she recalled watching a black bear amble down Crack Canyon. For this creature, she left a line of red thread three feet long. She cut one-inch threads for frogs and left them inside potholes to wriggle in the rain when the basins would inevitably fill. Time and space shift. It is now fall. The woman is now walking along the banks of the Colorado River. She takes her spool of red thread, ties one end to a juniper, and then begins walking with the river. Following each bend, each curve, her red thread trailing behind her for miles, stitching together what she had lost. It is spring. The woman is standing in the deep heat of the desert beside a large boulder known by locals as the birthing rock. Tiny feet the size of her index finger are etched in stone. Ten toes of hope point to figures of women bearing down, legs spread with the heads of children coming forth. She recognizes them as two beings seen as one, repeatedly. The woman picks up an obsidian chip that has been worked by ancient hands. The flaked edge is razor sharp. She holds it between her fingers like a pencil, opens her left hand, and traces her own lifeline from beginning to end. The crescent moon below her thumb turns red. She places her palm on the boulder and screams. Terry, as we walked, you you said that one of the questions, I may not have this exactly right, but that you asked yourself in Refuge, the book about your mother's death, that I think continued into finding beauty in a broken world, was the question of um, whether we can learn to love death itself. Could you say a little about how that question came to you and what it means to you? You know, I think there's always disturbances in in what we create. That's how I look at them. I know with the Navajo, it's true. They always have a line, spirit line of the imperfection. There was always a line in refuge that haunted me. Um, but I kept it there anyway, because I think that our writing self is, is, is further along than our, what I will call our waking self, you know, our, our embodied self. 
And that line was, if I can learn to love death, then I can begin to find refuge and change. And ever since that line, I keep thinking, can one learn to love death? What does that really mean? And I think it bled over and through leap into finding beauty in a broken world. <coughs> into Rwanda. Um, you know, I don't know if you can learn to love death. Um, but I think we can be present with it. And maybe that's what love is. I think there are people who love death. Um, and I think... Talk about that. Well, In what certainly way? it's true. Uh, I remember I was giving a talk about our work with cancer um, in Southern California and talking about people facing death and dying and how difficult it was. And at the end of the talk, an older woman came up to me and she introduced herself and she said she was from the nursing home across the street. And she said, you know, in my nursing home, there are many of us who wake up every day praying for death. Um, and so there is a point in, in a life, uh, or in many lives, at which death is a friend and, uh, you know, an eagerly sought after friend. And, and there is certainly, we know, people whose lives have just been simply so hard that death looks easier than what they've been through. So in that sense, I think one can come to love death. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. You know, it makes me think about when Louis came to the United States for the first time. This would have been in April 2007. And Brooke and I, you know, the three of us were driving home. This is Louis Gakumba, who's now our son, <coughs> Tutsi. And we, the first place we took him as we were on our way back to Castle Valley, which is where we live, it's hard for me to even talk about this, but um, we went to Dead Horse Point, which I think is one of the most profoundly beautiful places on the planet. You stand on that edge and you literally see the curvature of the earth and you see this erosional landscape layered, 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 layered um, with this line of quicksilver. Um, which is the Colorado River, reflecting light. Um, we walked to the edge, and he stood there for a long time. And then he said, if this place had been in Rwanda, Tutsis would have had a good death. Mm. Yeah. So I hadn't thought about it in, in that way. I think I was thinking more in terms of how do we accept death so that we don't fight it. <clears throat> personally and with those we love. <coughs> there are a lot of people here today who've, who've, who've thought about this, and we, we may have a chance to hear from them. Um, I'm obviously not comfortable with it, or I won't be coughing. Yeah. You know? mm -mm. Yeah, no, I, I have not come to love death. Um, I, to me, life is just so infinitely precious that it's not something I've managed to do. But, um, but I think coming, uh, coming to a place where the fear of death does not dominate us is, is um, something I've come much closer to. 
And Michael, can you talk about, in your years at Commonwealth with the cancer program, you know, what are some, I, this is a huge question, but I'm really interested, what are some of the things that you've learned? Is there a common thread, a red thread that you see being pulled through, through these sessions? Well, Lenore Leffer is with us here today somewhere. Lenore, where are you? You're there? Yeah. Would you be willing to... Um, you've sat with me so many evenings when we talk about death and dying uh, and people's fear of death and, and so on. And Lenore is the, the co-leader of the Cancer Help Program with me. She's the psychotherapist who each day meets with the eight participants. And, and so you've been immersed in this work for a very long time. So how would you respond to Terry's question about um, what we've learned from, from 23 years of doing the work uh, with people facing death and dying? Well, I would say it's been a profound and continual learning. And I think I keep coming because I need to learn myself uh, about this phenomenal event. But I would say to, to start off that having psychology as my main focus, <clears throat> that it feels important to acknowledge the total truth about <coughs> one's relationship to death. And there may be welcoming, there may be fear, there may be terror, there may be sadness. And part of that exploration is just to simply see what is emotional. Uh, and that seems to be quite liberating for people. And to realize that one does have a relationship to how one responds to the process of dying and the process of pain and suffering. And just opening up that field of interest uh, becomes a very, very important experience because in this culture, we're not friendly towards death. And um, so that pervades people. Families don't want to talk about it. And so the fact that one can say whatever is in one's heart or on one's mind uh, is a very important place to start and um, to get the historical input about dying, what people's experiences in their own families, if they've witnessed animals die. We have people come that have never seen a death. So it's quite amazing. So I would say just opening up the conversation to talk about the fears and to talk about the concerns and people who are ill, how they would like to deal with their own dying, the experience of choice around dying and their own deaths. Um, I think that's probably what I'd like to say as a start. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Jennifer Stoll, your, your friend and mine, our beloved friend, has sat in so many of those evenings. And Jennifer, what, what do you think we've learned from those evenings? Boy, you know, Michael, I... The more programs we have and the more close experience we have to these issues and people going through them, the more of a mystery it is to me. So it isn't that I me understand more really but accept more peacefully than not understanding the mystery of it. Um, and I'm less afraid the more we're in close association with that journey. I'm less afraid of the fear of not understanding it. And I trust the process more. 
That's a really circular answer to your question, I'm sorry. But it's that piece that seems to be the golden thread to the somehow preparation for the experience that I deeply value getting. But my actual understanding seems to be less than You know, I think this is what we can say we know. We know that eight people show up at the beginning of the week and that most of them are exhausted and traumatized and uh, anxious and depressed. Not all of them. Some of them come in good shape. But most of them are exhausted, traumatized, anxious, depressed. And many of them are very anguished about the prospect of dying. And we know that at the end of the week, that has shifted fundamentally for most of the people. And I will never forget a, a woman, a nurse, who lived for years beyond what people expected with uh, a metastatic ovarian cancer. And she came on one of the alumni days and she said, you know, Michael, before I came to Commonweal, I woke up every day afraid of dying. And she said, I still don't want to die, but now I wake up every day to live. And so I think what we can say is that the process is mysterious. We don't begin to understand it. It is incredibly unique to each human being. But there is something about finding a truly safe and non-judgmental place in which to talk about the experience of, of whatever one fears, whether it's the fear of death itself the fear not of death, but of the dying process. Mm -hmm. Neither the fear of death nor the fear of dying, but the fear of leaving young children mm -hmm. behind, or the fear of a life that somehow feels incomplete, or misused, or misspent. There are a series of fears that people have that are very varied. Um, and, uh, and each, of course, is part of their story. And one of the things that I think is deeply true, speaking of the power of story, is that people often come to Commonweal with their stories having been broken by the experience of cancer. And there is some fundamental way in which they are given the space, as you described so beautifully in The, the Woman Who Was Raped, to re-knit their stories and to heal their stories and to create a story about themselves now mm -hmm. that encompasses this rather than being broken by it uh, mm -hmm. or being, you know, in another way. Um, but I want to ask you a question because one of the questions that I find so difficult, it's one thing to come to terms with one's own death, but what do we do about our anguish about the dying of the earth itself. You know, to me, it, that is a, it is a different category of dying, even though they are so closely linked. But it seems to me that the anguish at the dying of the earth is, is a different, it's a different cosmological class of anguish or something. It's it just... I hold it in a different place in myself. And I wondered if you had thought about that. It's interesting. You know, because when I think about questions I want to ask you, I think about, you know, how is our personal healing 
in relationship to the healing of the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, how is our body the body of the planet? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, there is no separation. Mm -hmm. I, I see it as the same thing. I mean, the magnitude, I understand what you're saying, but on the other hand, it's an abstraction, too. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the impulses I had in writing Finding Beauty in a Broken World was not to avert my gaze, to write my way through that which was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, even to the point of including a hundred pages of field notes on prairie dogs that I knew would be boring mm -hmm. by most people. Mm -hmm. um, because the first three days I was watching prairie dogs, I was bored. Mm -hmm. Not because it was boring, but because I was on speed mm -hmm. and I couldn't see. And I was just like, oh my God, I cannot believe I have to write... 15-minute intervals, what's happening? Nothing is happening. You know, I'm going mad. Mm -hmm. And then on day three, it's like something kicked in, and I thought, I cannot believe it. I don't have enough space to write everything that's happening. The world has come alive. Well, nothing had changed but me. You know, I had slowed down enough to where I could really see. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, individuals became, you know, fully fully fleshed out beings, you know, Madam, what was known as head wide apart because she had black stripes that were wide apart that were part of um, John Hoagland's um, systematic scheme of identification. Suddenly I found writing in my notes, Madam head wide apart, you know, <laughs> what shifted? You know, in the same way that when I went to Rwanda, I'm not proud to tell you this, you know, I was really scared and I was afraid that I was going to get sick. And when we went to the site where we were going to create this genocide memorial, you know, suddenly there's a hundred children all around you. And after learning how to say hello, Amakuru, and thank you, Marikosi, the next phrase I learned was, please move back. Mm -hmm. And then after a month of this, I did not have enough hands and arms to hug all those children. You know, what happened? What took place? You know, how, how, I guess, in terms of the earth and the anguish we're all feeling for this planet, for ourselves, is how do we not avert our gaze? How do we stay present? How do we engage? How do we make a decision to to accept our death? You know, I don't know, but um, I want to be here. I want to be part of this conversation. Um, I mean, you're having this conversation at the, with the New School. You're having this conversation at Commonweal with those who are faced with their own death. I think, finally, we're having this conversation collectively on the planet, that we are in the midst of climate change, that there is a real world here that is really dying, that 30,000 species are leaving the planet every year. Um, at least we're talking about this. And I think now we have a president who will not turn away. This is, to me, one of the most fundamental questions, which I really do not know the answer to, which is um, how to hold the great dying that we are in the middle of. Um, because, again, in the Cancer Help Program, when, when I talk to people individually about what they're carrying, uh, and they talk about their cancers and their families and so on, but it's surprising how many people will say, and I'm just anguished about what's happening to the earth or our country or, or whatever it is, and that anguish 
is so powerful in the lives of so many of us. And I'm not 100% convinced at all that it's healthy to carry the anguish in the way that we do. Or, I mean, we all carry it in different ways. But I'm just not convinced that it's a healthy relationship to the anguish of the world. And I, I, I doubt that there's one um, solution to this. I think part of that, yeah. and we were talking about rituals, you know, that the, the other side of storytelling is ritual, to create a ritual that holds that story collectively. You know, what are our collective rituals right now on which the planet? Which we don't have. Which we don't have. Are they arising organically? Are mm. we seeing them? Part of ritual is not just to express grief, but to express joy mm -hmm. and the belonging. And, you know, again, when I think about Rwanda, which is a country where every square inch of that landscape has been bled on or bled over, mm -hmm. um, the children, you cannot rob the children of their joy. And it strikes me, you know, that, that true joy, mm -hmm. not being happy, not being, you know, but real joy, rises out of the deep suffering, out of that knowing. And so, you know, what are acts of joy that can be carried out on a personal level with our relationship to the land, to the earth, collectively as well? You know, I mean, I think these are some of the questions. We've never been here before. We were talking, Brooke and I, to some friends who are writing a book on the apocalypse. Their point of view is, it's in our nature to create apocalyptic scenarios. Mm -hmm. You know, if, whether it's the rapture, whether it's in Mormon religion, you know, the, the second coming of Christ. Um, is climate change another form of, of the apocalypse? I don't know. But, again, I keep thinking of Nadine Gordimer, you know, her question, what is the essential gesture? And I would The great say, South African writer. Yeah, gestures. Um, and maybe... Part of that is forgiveness. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a... May I share with you a story that, yeah, yeah. that Louis... This, I don't understand. This is something... This is a story I don't understand, but there, I think there are, are clues for us um, in this passage. I want to tell you a story, says Louis, as we sit on Mama Chakula's porch, where we met almost two years ago. There is a woman who was married to a pastor. It was a happy family. Some people say they were a family of six. Others say they were eleven. The woman was away. And when she returned, she saw how the interhomway were butchering her children on the ground along with her husband. After the war, the man who murdered her family came back from the Congo, and when the Gachacha courts called him to explain what he had been accused of, he said... I accept everything I have been charged with, and from the depth of my heart I apologize. The woman said, I saw everything. I saw you kill my family. I loved my children and my husband. I am now alone. I have nothing. But I now choose to forgive you and take you into my home. You will live with me, and I will do whatever it takes to make you feel like my own son. Can you be in the same shoes with this woman, Louis asks. Louis then says, Rwanda is struggling with peace one person at a time. This is as hard as growing wheat on rock. We are finding our way toward unity and reconciliation on a walkway full of thorns, and we are walking barefoot. He stands up and walks over to the balcony that overlooks Kiseni into the Congo where he was born. We are trying to forgive, but to forgive is to forget 
and we cannot forget. Perhaps there is another word. I am searching for that word. Terry Tempest Williams, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael.